Okay, for the rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles, if we're not already there, to the book of James. The book of James. Turn your app there. Uh, For those of you who don't know the book of James, uh, this is typically one of the most intense practical books in all of the New Testament. It's known as the Proverbs of the Old Testament. And if you're brand new to your Bible, Proverbs are like the, the wisdom literature. And James is compared to Proverbs often because he's really blunt, he's really terse. He would make a perfect blue-collar redneck worker who just gets in your face, calls it as it is. This is why people love him and also why people hate him. Guys like Martin Luther who were coming out of an era where people thought they had to earn their salvation hated the book of James. He called it the epistle of straw because he was afraid people would misunderstand how practical James was for a way that they could earn their salvation. Now, I think Martin Luther was wrong. I also, he's Martin Luther, so I'm careful not to throw rocks at the guy. If you don't know who Martin Luther is, Google it. He's way more famous than any of us will ever be. But here's why Luther had problems with the book of James. It was so practical. It was almost like, it was almost like he was reading people's minds. I think this is a book that is particularly helpful for us. This is not my choice specifically, although I'm the one that's going to do primary preaching of this book. Uh, This is actually an elder decision that all of us as elders thought this is exactly what we need as a church at this time. Because we need to hear that it's important for us to have our faith constantly authenticated and matured and grown. That's exactly why this book is chosen is because we're a church that's trying to mature. I don't know if you're, if you're brand new. Here's the skinny on Urban Grace. We're about six years old, but we feel that God is calling us to another level of maturity. And as the book of James will show, there's only really one way to mature in your faith, and that is through the testing and the suffering of Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, and this is new for you, this is kind of like your view into what a real Christian needs to be understanding. And so if you're not yet a Christian, if you have not yet made that decision, this book isn't necessarily uh, designed with you in mind. It's designed uh, from a pastor to a church to explain what Christianity is all about. But I hope, even if you're not a Christian, that you take a careful view of what this book has to say. Because I think it can have great applications. Now, we've called the series Prove It. This is not, let me state this up front, this is not a series on how to prove that you're saved or not. James does not write a letter to say, this is how you prove, this is how you get in as a Christian. This is how you believe. You, you have to prove your salvation. No, that's not it. Salvation is a gift from God, free grace. We don't have to prove anything. However, God calls us to prove and, and mature our faith. And in some ways, all, every sermon is basically going to ask some sort of a question, and it's going to be answered by prove it. And so the first one is you call yourself a Christian. Here's your chance to prove it. You say you have faith, prove it. Not to earn your salvation, let's not misunderstand. And this is what Steve was trying to say and and what we've been saying is that the gospel is good news of Jesus Christ. That if we believe in God, Jesus Christ, those are two. Two things about one person. God is Jesus Christ. 
That if you believe in his name, he forgives all of your sin. If you trust in him, he provides you with the salvation necessary through his death and through his resurrection. That's not something you can earn in any way. You can't work hard to get close to God. It's something that God does for us. However, at times, we need to know what we really have, don't we? At times, even though in your head you say, hey, I think I have this amount in my bank, and you look at your bank account, and you're like, I didn't have what I thought I had. Ever have that happen? None of you, right? It's just me. Right? Or you say, I, I, I have, I have, I'm ready to go for, for the morning's work, and then you look and you realize you're not ready to go like you thought you were. And this is kind of what the books, book of James will do, is it will help prepare us for life as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, that it will help us to see if what we say is what we really have. Well, some of us here this morning, many of us here would call ourselves Christians. And here's a chance for us to learn what we really have. Now, there's, uh, we, we don't live in a culture that typically embraces these things called trials or tests. Okay, we live in kind of this culture that's kind of running away in some ways. I know that there's, you know, the high discipline people, the high A people. I don't know the ENTFAs or whatever, the golden retrievers. I don't know all that stuff. But anyways, the people that are disciplined. Okay, you can tell what I am just by the way I said that, right? Yeah, the people that, that understand that resistance and tension and testing in life is good for you. High-level athletes, high, people in, in, in important and, and uh, intense job positions, they understand this. But for general culture, I, I feel like we're running further and further away from, from difficulty. In the school playground in uh, my daughter's school, they've actually outlawed jumping in puddles because they are afraid that these will damage kids, okay? This is not a joke. This is real. Well, the ideal is, you know, take away all of the difficult things in life, I think. You can tell where I stand on the issue. I'm like, really? They've taken away jumping in puddles. Okay. But this is the kind of culture we're living in. Let's take away and remove all the difficult things in life to help. And what does it do? Well, I'm afraid there's no rules when you get in the real world not to jump in puddles. That's my fear. And that's James's fear. And so he, let's, let's, let's uh, before we even get into it, I want to say we're very different than some other cultures. And so some other cultures understand this. In particular, cultures where they have uh, young men trying to become adults. We don't really have this kind of a culture. There's no rites of passage in our culture, so to speak. Uh, they're brutal rites of passage if, if they are. They make, I think, young people, young men in particular, dumber. Um, then, then they do kind of raise the level. And so across, I, I, went, I went and researched a little bit of rites of passage across the world. Rites of passage in tribal cultures where they're actually trying to define uh, for their culture what it means to become a, 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 a young boy, to become a man. And so they're trying to test them out. Okay, so let me tell you three of these and then I'm going to ask which one you would like. So if you can see the next one. The first rite of passage is called a set of bullet ant gloves. Okay? There's such a creature as a bullet ant. That, there it is right there. 
I think that's magnified just a bit. It might not be real life size. However, those claws are very real. I don't know if any of you have ever been bitten by an angry ant, but it really hurts. These ants are actually designed by God to be angry and to bite. Okay? They're called bullet ants because it feels like a bullet hits you when you get bitten by them. Up there you see, those are all ants. Those little black dots are ants. That's a glove. What they do is they, uh, they sedate these ants somehow using some sort of a bark-chewing solution of some kind. And so these ants are kind of uh, drowsy uh, so they can actually get them inside of the glove. And then the sedation wears off and the ants get what? They get angry. And the point is, boys about the age of, somewhere in the age of 10 to 13, have to put on these gloves four separate times over the course of a week. They put these gloves on for 10 minutes at a time. The point being, if you can suffer through the bullet ant glove, then you can become a man. They test these kids. I know some of you are like, no, I'm sure glad that those aren't our rites of passage for urban grace. Okay, maybe this is eldership. I mean, what do you think, guys? No. Okay, it sounds horrific, but essentially, what are they trying to do? They're trying to test. See what this young boy is made of. See if he's ready for manhood. The idea, uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Second, second test, so to speak. Oh, that one's uh, the third one, actually. Maybe this is the right one? Nope. Okay, here we go. Uh, help me out there, Matt. Um, yes, there we go. Thank you. Okay, this is called, <laughs> what does it look like he's doing? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's land diving. Okay, this is not a bungee cord. Those are just vines, and that's a 97-foot structure. And the idea being, I know this sounds crazy even saying this out loud. The idea being, um, if you're smart enough, if you're tough enough, and if you know how to measure properly, this is, brings new meaning to the uh, measure twice, cut once theory. If you measure properly, you try to get as close to the land as possible without crushing yourself. Um, and the closer you are, the more of an adult you are. It's a test. Someone back there is looking at me like this, like, where is this going? <laughs> yeah, they do it as a test. They do it as a test. The third one, help me out there, Matt. I think I missed my slides. It's called the Maasai Lion Hunt. At the age of 13, young boys take a spear in a group. They head out to the jungle. And if they come back killing a lion, then they've matured as a man. If they don't come back, then they were too weak uh, for the culture anyways, and uh, it was a way of separating the strong from the weak. Pretty intense, hey? You're like, some of us, there's like, hey, I graduated from play school, woo! It's a long way from those tests. Now, why those tests? Why those tests? Although they seem really uh, strange to us, these tests were there because this, these particular cultures understand that putting people under stress can be a good thing to test what's really actually there. You know, this, this idea is not that far off. And in particular, um, uh, this is where James is at, actually. Uh, my thing's not working here properly. Uh, Matt, there we go. And so 
let me tell you a little bit about the writer of this particular letter. This is a letter written to a group of churches. Let me just read it out for you and then I'll, I'll get into it. So James chapter 1, uh, and we're only going to deal with the first four verses. And so this is what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Pretty short, blunt. And he says this. First thing he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So let's look a little bit about who is this James? Who is this writer? This is kind of somewhat of an overview. It's not necessarily going to be in every message, and and we'll have a write-up for you that will help us with this. But who is this James guy? Now, little-known fact for some of you, this is Jesus' little stepbrother. It's Jesus' little stepbrother, who ultimately became a pastor, who ultimately was in charge of a number of churches. Okay, so we're not talking of someone who is isolated from Jesus, who heard about Jesus. This is someone who watched Jesus grow up. Now, what's unique about James is that he is never written about and shown to be a Christian, a follower of who Jesus was until Jesus was resurrected. I guess when your brother rises from the dead, that strikes something in you and you pay attention. But literally, this man would have watched Jesus grow up for 33 years and then he discovered. What I find unique about that is that he doesn't describe that. I mean, if Jesus was my brother, it would be on my business cards. I would pull it out when people were like, yeah, I don't really agree with you, Trev. Well, yeah, well, check out who I'm related to, right? Easy to name drop, would it not be? Hey, I know the Messiah. I slept beside the Messiah. I cooked dinner for the Messiah. I fought with the Messiah. He didn't do that. What does he say? A servant of Jesus Christ. Something miraculous has happened to this man who doesn't just believe this is another human being who did a bunch of great things and was a great teacher. I can guarantee you, you would never say this about your brother or sister unless you really truly believe that they were actually the Messiah. You would never just make things up like, oh yeah, they're a pretty good person. Like, tell me about your family a little bit. Well, save the world. That's what he could say. And yet, what does he say? I'm a servant of the Most High God. I'm a pastor who has been given a responsibility from the Messiah, from the ruler of the world, from the Savior of the world. I love that about James. Already we find out so much from just even that statement right there, the humility, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now we don't have a a recollection very much of what this is like, but the word 12 means a lot to anyone who would have some sort of a Jewish background. And that's exactly what we would have. If you didn't know this, Christianity did not just not start with Jesus. It actually began with a Hebrew religion. And that's all of our Old Testament. Jesus is the, procl- the, the, the Messiah that everyone was supposed to be expecting. And so it's birthed out of a very Jewish religion, the Jewish religion. It's one of the reasons why Jews today still struggle with Christians. 
One of the reasons is, if I find Christianity, but don't say it came from us. And that's, that was the big fight then. It still is a fight now. But Christianity did not just come out of nowhere. Jesus did not arrive on the scene and just start a brand new religion. He was Jewish. He lived in a Jewish family. He would have known Jewish culture. And this, this word, the 12 tribes of dispersion, is what happened is as Christianity grew after Jesus died, persecution came upon them. In other words, the present Jews in Jesus' time didn't really think he was the Messiah and wanted this idea of Christianity completely eliminated from the world. And so they put them under stress. They persecuted them. One of the books of the Bible, the book of Acts, is a book really about the persecution of the church. And in Acts chapter 7, a very important member of the church later on, called the Apostle Paul, was actually at one time, he, he martyred the very, one of the Jewish become Christian evangelists, Stephen. Acts chapter 7, 8, 9. This is the story of the Apostle Paul who later on would become maybe the greatest missionary of all time for Christianity in particular. And so what James is trying to do here is he's trying to speak to the number of Christians who have been scattered by the persecution. Okay, it starts in Jerusalem where Jesus is both killed and then raises from the dead and appears. And then it begins to spread normally under persecution. And so what James is trying to do is say, hey, the, the, the church that's been scattered, the 12 tribes of dispersion, 12 tribes comes from this, this idea in, in Genesis where there are literally 12 brothers that become the 12 tribes of Israel that eventually becomes kind of known as this is Israel. And so what James is trying to do here is he's trying to kind of bridge these two gaps between those who, are, who have Jewish heritage but are Christians now. Messianic Christians, essentially, is what they would be today. Sounds like someone who would know a thing or two about persecution. Both James and for these 12 tribes. So let's remember that all the way through the book. That this isn't written to people who have experienced like trials as in, like I got a big cut on my toe and now it's infected. Okay? These are people that have, they've watched brothers and sisters beheaded for what they believe. They've experienced in, they've experienced persecution from people that they thought were on their team. And so when James writes, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, that you experience trials, he better know what he's talking about. He better know what he's talking about. I think he does. I think he does. And he, he starts in his typical blunt way, and he gets into it, and he says, count it all joy, my brothers, and actually my translation uh, it's translated literally brothers, but it should mean brothers and sisters. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I love this. Right off the hop, James reminds all these believers, all these people who have trusted in Jesus Christ to embrace all kinds of trials. He doesn't get specific because some would have very drastic trials. Some of us would have very not drastic trials. Just like today. 
Some of us in the church, you think your trial is the worst trial, and then you, you know, has this ever happened to you where you hear of what someone else is going through, and you're like, oh, I guess that's, my trial isn't nearly as bad. My life isn't nearly as bad as that. This happens everywhere, and this is exactly why James says it like this. Count it all joy. No matter what kind of trial, no matter what kind of test you face, whether that's intentionally because of persecution or just kind of life, something has happened to you. At this point, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of your own trials and what you believe you have to go through. Different kinds of trials. The only trials that I would say you remove from are the ones that you bring upon yourself, right? You say, oh, yeah, it's such a trial at work. It's like, yeah, well, that's because you're rude. Like, that's, that's not what the trial that James is talking about. He's talking about the kind of trials that you don't really have any control over, the kind of trials that typically solicit the questions in your mind like, hey, I'm a good person, why is this happening to me? I know none of you have ever asked that, right? No one's ever asked, why do bad things happen to good people, right? It's those kind of trials. Hey, I've obeyed God. Why is this happening to me? Hey, I invested my life in a church plant. Now it's even harder than it was when we began. How come? Hey, I wanted to have a marriage that glorified Jesus. I did not want a marriage that was difficult or a family life that was difficult. I didn't sign up for this. It's kind of those kind of trials. And James, who is probably seen with his own eyes some of the most horrendous suffering ever, basically says this, you can embrace those kind of trials when you know why they're there. This is the main point for today. That we can embrace trials when we understand why they're really there. This gets into this issue of the problem of suffering, problem of pain, those kind of things. So we live in a culture that says there's, it's, there's so many painful things that are meaningless. And James says, no, no, no. The trials that Jesus allows and gives to us are not meaningless. They have a very specific purpose for us. What are they trying to produce? They're trying to produce steadfastness, perseverance. We live in a culture that doesn't have perseverance outside of maybe some athletic events. We're ready to quit our jobs when difficult times come. We're ready to quit our marriages when we face a little speed bump. We have a little miscommunication. We're ready to throw in the towel. When our kids don't obey us like we'd hope they obey, we throw in the towel and try and get them some help and on and on the list goes. We look for jobs that aren't too difficult. We default toward that. We just have a whole culture that just resists the understanding that there's nothing to learn about difficulty about well, things like failure, about things like being betrayed, standing in the line at Starbucks. And uh, I, 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 I'm not a very good eavesdropper, so you'll have to pardon me. And I apologize if I've put anyone, if, if it was you who I've eavesdropped on. But I heard something about a discussion about education. And here's what I heard. We've, we've shifted kind of from giving someone an F to... Not yet. 
because it's so much easier to hear not yet than it is to hear fail. And I was like, okay, I understand that. I, I understand why that's given. And here's my issue with that is that when you show up to your job, they don't give you a not yet. They give you a fail in real life. This is what happens. They don't give medals at the Olympics for not yet an Olympic champion. That's indicative of the real world. And this is why it's so startling for us that we're surprised by these trials and that will come later. He says, don't be surprised. That's what another writer of the Bible says. Don't be surprised at these. And we are, aren't we? We're surprised that we, we follow God. We obey God. Why, why do we have to face this stuff? And James says, here's why. First thing you have to know, you have to know that God allows them. We have to know that God allows them. This gets into a little bit of a theological conundrum for some of us. We say that God doesn't, he doesn't have anything to do with these things that we're facing. And I would say this, God allows them because God has a purpose in them. This is why God allows them and we can embrace them because we know that God has a purpose in them. I think we want to do this because we want to protect God's reputation. Like God could never possibly let anything bad ever happen to anyone that he loves. Here's what I'd say to that. The evidence shows us differently. That God has clearly loved people and allowed them to suffer terribly. Does anyone remember about a year and a half ago when a number of Christians were beheaded in Egypt? We have a tendency to say, did God allow this to happen? It's hard to say that. It's hard to say that. We want to protect God's reputation. Here's what I say. God's reputation doesn't need to be protected by us. He's perfectly capable of protecting his own reputation. He's not afraid that he might get misunderstood at times. But here's what I say. When you understand what God is trying to accomplish through these things, it makes a world of difference how you see some of those things. And did you know how many people's faith was strengthened through the brutal execution of these Egyptian Christians? It's incredible. Incredible advancement of the gospel. Incredible advancement of people's faith, faith and development of faith. And many Christian brothers and sisters, actually brothers and sisters of these young men in particular, were bolstered in their faith because of the boldness and the courage of these young men who are willing to die for their faith. Now the design of those who did the execution was what? To crush the movement. And here's what God did with this. He blew it up. It's just like our God. See, if you can understand and get your head around what James is trying to tell us, which is you can count it all joy, not when you see someone suffer, but when you realize the purpose of this is very different than everyone else's purpose. We can actually embrace them. We can count them as joy. Now, now that's confusing for you. Count it all joy. I, I think maybe even a better translation is consider it. Joy. Consider it an opportunity. 
If you've ever prayed the prayer, dear God, strengthen my faith in you. Has anyone ever prayed that? If you've prayed that, here's what I think James would say. And this is how he's answering the prayer, through your trials. It's a totally different perspective. It can make us laugh at trials. This is not a pity party in any way. Do not compare me to those Egyptian Christians, but I had a weird week. I'm supposed to be preaching on, you know, trials and how they make you stronger. And I had the most disorganized, chaotic week I've had in a long, long, long time. I mean, I had some of the weirdest experiences in my life. Our sewer backed up like four times this week. This afternoon, I think the plumber's coming back for the third time. I forgot things. I was late for a speaking engagement. I was supposed to speak at Curtis's camp, and I was, I was, I was late for it because I, I, traffic was just unbearably heavy at that particular time. It was just one of those weeks where it all just seemed to add up. And even this morning, I thought, oh, I can, I can ask for your pity. And I smiled and laughed on my way to pick up my iPad because I thought, Jesus, you are strengthening me, aren't you? You're toughening me up in this, aren't you? The worst thing I could do is just say, hey, feel sorry for me. Nuh-uh. You didn't get this chance to have your faith developed this week like I did. That's how I need to look at it. But that's me. What's it for you? Don't answer this question for me. Answer it for you. Is that how you're looking at these trials that you're facing? Some of you have horrendous trials right now. You're dealing with things that I can't imagine and I wouldn't wish on anybody. There's all kinds of suffering that is going on in this room right here. Some of it's deep family issues and it's not resolved yet and you've been at it for a long, 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 long time and there's no end in sight and you sometimes feel crushed. Here's what I say. You can only embrace that kind of suffering and pain and testing and trial when you know that God can and will develop your faith through this. Some of you are having marital difficulty. Some of you are not married, and this is difficult. Some of you have a a terrible season at work. Some of you are dealing with infertility. Some of you are dealing with too many children, and you don't want what to do with them all. It doesn't matter what it is. Each person is called on a specific faith path. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to develop your faith, not someone else's faith in you, your faith in you. And so the trials and the tests that he's given to you are specifically designed for the building of your faith. To what? To accomplish perseverance. Perseverance is a word we don't hear much these days. Persevere. Persevere. We understand persevere like make it to the end of the day. Persevere means being able to carry, this is how one commentator defined perseverance, being able to carry a a heavy load for a long period of time. Being able to carry a heavy load for a long period of time. Persevere. This image is like one of these guys that climbs up in the Himalayas for a long time period of time. They got that big 85-pound pack and sandals. They're walking on rocks. That's the image. Perseverance, right? This is what this accomplishes in us. Because there comes times in our life where the well seems dry. 
We feel empty. We're discouraged. And if we think that this, is, this, this life of faith is a short-term thing, we'll get easily discouraged and, and quit walking. It develops our faith muscle, so to speak. So lastly, what trials accomplish? Make us steadfast. They make us steadfast. And it says in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want to take a moment just to say, don't hear that as, as you get made into a perfect person. It's not exactly. In fact, some commentators say perfect isn't the greatest word to use, but we don't have kind of an English um, parallel to the Greek word for this, and that actually this word translated could go two kind of different ways. What it ultimately means is mature. I love that. So hear that word perfect as mature. Okay? And here gets into where our culture will push against us because our culture is not trying to be mature. Have you noticed? I've read a lot of books, not by Christians, mind you, that say the immaturity of men in particular is destroying our society. It's by a feminist who said, hey, I'm all for the ladies, but this perpetual immaturity of young men is going to kill our society. It's not good. This is a feminist. Why? Because immaturity kills us. We're not impressed with the 40-year-old who's still sitting in the parents' basement who only comes upstairs and eats mom's home-cooked meal, complains about it, and then goes back down playing video games. Anyone impressed by that kind of person? Why? This is immature. I mean, if a four-year-old does it, it's hilarious, right? Three-year-old does it, it's hilarious. Two-year-old, you don't even say anything. But a 40-year-old, like if you witness that this afternoon, you go over to someone's place and you find out they have like a 40-year-old like son or daughter and they're like, they don't help make the meal at all or anything like that and yet they come up and they complain about how terrible the food is and, and they watch mom and dad work, you would not be impressed by these people. We live in this kind of culture though where that's becoming some of the norm. I'm going to go after the guys here because I'm a guy and I see it all the time. And I say, men, immaturity is not impressive. And this is, this is, this is James basically saying, Pastor James coming in saying, you can embrace this because it helps you to grow up, to mature. And here's why I think this is good for us, because some of us need to hear this word. This is not an easy word for us to hear. It's not an easy word for me to say, to be honest. Some of you are like, oh, I think you're over the top here, Trev. But here's what I would say. If we are going to preach the gospel in this city, and it's ridiculously hard, what we can't have is 40-year-old Christians sitting in their parents' basement who complain about the meal. We need mature Christians here. We need mature disciples 
who are not just capable of reproducing, but are reproducing themselves in other people. They're growing up. They're teaching each other what it means to follow Jesus in a difficult culture. They're courageously taking on all of the idols of the culture and saying, as difficult as it looks, we will take on hell with a squirt gun if we have to. This is what James is all about. He says, you say you'll follow Jesus at any cost? Prove it. But in order to prove it, you'll have to grow up. You will have to grow up. Some of us have been walking through our spiritual lives as spiritual victims. Like, oh no, God hates me so much because of all the bad things that is, is happening to me. And James says, no. These are here to help you grow up. The question is, straight up, you can hate me for this message, that's fine. I've already had peace with God about it. The question is, will you grow up? Is that what you really want? Are you and I going to be able to look in the face of all the adversity we have, no matter where we are, and quit being victims and instead say, my God loves me so much that he wants to mature me and bring maturity in me and that I can count these trials as joy. And when someone looks and says, how can you get through life? You just laugh and you say, my faith is just so rock solid, I don't care what you say. Who wants a faith like that? Does anyone want faith like that? Here's my question. Will you count it joy? This week when your sewer backs up on you, so to speak, four, five, six, seven times, you're going to get out the plunger and laugh? Or are you going to call in sick? We have an opportunity here, friends. We have an opportunity here. This fall, in particular, I'm calling us out as a church we have an opportunity to mature as a church. Planning this church, being in, serving here has not been easy. We have to set up every week. Things don't work right. We never have enough money that we need. We never have enough money to, serve, to, to do the things that we want. There's not enough people to serve. It's an inconvenient time. We're having a hard time getting involved. And we can cry about this. We can pout about this. Or we can say, hey, God wants to mature us as a church, so let's roll up our sleeves and get busy. Let's develop our faith. Let's take God at his word. It says, we believe you, God, that you want us to mature as a church. You want us to mature as disciples. And I've sat on the fence too long. And this is not to say I'm disappointed with your service, friends. I know some of you serve till your fingers bled. But guess what? The story continues. Ephesians 4.13 says this about Jesus. He is the one who gave these gifts to the church. And then he lists them. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ, until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature and full-grown in the Lord. 
measuring up in the full stature of Christ. I, didn't know, I, I don't know if you know this, but my job description isn't actually to do the ministry and the mission for you. My job as your pastor and as an elder here is to equip you to do the ministry. It's to help you become mature. So consider this hard word this morning, an act of love to you that says, it's all I'm called to do. It's to equip us to maturity. But if you thought that this is just a church that's just excited to be here playing church, then you've got me and our church all wrong. We're here to mature. We're here to be mature disciples of Jesus Christ and we will do whatever we can to bring you along that path. You can embrace this or you can run from it. The choice is yours. Band, would you come up as we pray? Jesus, I'll be honest with you, I would never come up with this word myself. I'm way too scared of what people think. And I am thankful, Jesus, that this is not my word, this is your word. And this is not me coming up with things and challenges. This is you bringing this challenge to us. And Jesus, we have some hard decisions to make as a church, as people who follow for those. As we proclaim this gospel, we have people watching how we'll respond to this. And so Jesus, I pray that you will burn in us a thirst for maturity, a thirst for growing up, a thirst for getting rid of the victim shackles that we carry around with us and laughing in the face of trials, not to disintegrate these trials, but to say, these are here to develop my faith. And Jesus, we want to be a mature church. We want to be mature leaders. We want to grow up, so to speak. And so help us to do that, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.